and I slapped my arm down on the warmer and opened up my elbow area, my inner elbow, and I said, do it, do it now. Wow. She was great. She she got, you know, the things that were needed. She put a tourniquet on me. She attached me somehow with a, a big needle to my arm with a little tiny butterfly needle that she was able to get into the baby. Wow. I don't know how she did that yeah, because the baby was bloated. Yeah. yeah. And she, she said, all right, let's do this. Hello there. Welcome back to The Bleeding Truth. I'm Sally McNally and I'm here with my daughter, Bridget. Hello, that's me. And yeah, so we've started this podcast almost a month ago now for Sally to talk about her stories and share all sorts of info and experience on a lot of different women's health issues. And today I'd like to talk about my bleeding truth about being a walking blood donor in Saudi Arabia. Exciting stuff. So I've heard some of these stories, but I think there's probably more that I haven't heard. So I'm excited to hear some of these today. And before we hop into them, just want to say listener discretion is advised. Uh, A lot of the stories that Sally shares are sometimes gruesome or, you know, just intended for mature audiences. So listen at your own uh, discretion. Right. And also, before we get into it, we're going to answer a question from the listeners. And thanks again. You guys have really fantastic questions. Uh, We'll put a link again in the description for you guys to ask Sally anything. And we'll answer it on one of the future episodes. Uh, Anything about midwifery stuff or yoga or, you know, Sally's personal stories, we'd be happy to, to dive into them as well. So the question, none of these are hard. I think, you know, you, you have so much experience that it's, it's really cool that, you know, people want to ask you any question at all. Um, so, I mean, I, I see it as an honor. It is an honor. So the question for today, this is an anonymous uh, question. They're asking, I, well, they're, they're sharing <laughs> a little bit as well. So they're saying, I have a new boyfriend and I've had quite a few gynecological and urinary problems since we've dated only six months ago. One thing after another, yeast infection, spotting for five weeks, a UTI that won't go away. And now I just did the leap. So intercourse is off the table for six weeks. How can I do other things that are healthy and loving while my health gets better? And what can I do to keep the intimacy alive? Well, you poor girl, it sounds very uh, annoying uh, because you're getting the yeast infection and UTIs. Um, first of all, you've got to leave that area down there clean and dry, right? Um, yeast loves sugar. So Mm -hmm. look at your diet and reduce the amount of carbohydrates and sugar that you're eating. And if you're still making love after the leap, or maybe you're past that stage now where you can make love again, maybe think about uh, what your partner's eating too. If his diet's full of uh, alcohol or sugar or carbohydrates, then his his sperm is going to be very sugary too. So that's going to feed the, the sperm as well. I didn't know that. Or feed the yeast. Um, yeah. Uh, so what is what is leap? What it's so it's capitalized. It's an abbreviation. L e e p. Yeah, it's a, a procedure that uh, when we do Paps, we're looking for uh, abnormal cells on the cervix. Gotcha. Um, damage to the cervix that is caused by the HPV virus, and every now and then we find 
uh, more damage. So there's different levels of damage that can occur. And sometimes biopsy is needed. Sometimes oh, it's wow. a little biopsy and sometimes it's a, a deeper biopsy. And the leap is kind of like a cone shape. It goes in and takes like a, a little cone shape from the uh, entrance of the cervix. But of course, it needs time to heal. And the six weeks is usually the time it takes. Oh, okay. Uh, gotcha. Aha. Uh-huh. So um, we would say don't have intercourse for that time because it might be spotting or, you know, you might disturb the healing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, there's many ways you can keep the intimacy alive. There's other ways of lovemaking that you could do, but also uh, maybe to spend time developing the relationship itself um, if he's if he's a good man and he loves you he's not going to worry about waiting for six weeks that's a short amount of time if he mm-hmm. can't wait for six weeks to make love to you then you know maybe it's good to know that now because later when you have a baby that's the same time frame after you have the baby we usually oh, say okay. try not to have intercourse for the six weeks until you know, the placenta site is healed, the cervix is closed up and the vagina is healed. So if he can't wait after a leap procedure, he may not be able to wait after you have a baby too. So you don't want to find out uh, then, right? I mean, yeah, um, not everything intimate has to be sex, right? So you can you right. can do really nice date nights and a lot of other, you know, couples things that definitely can be considered intimate as well yes Bridgie you might be a bit of an expert on that (laughs) more than me now (laughs) I think we both are honestly not experts in this field (laughs) no definitely not Um, but the UTIs yeah um, perhaps uh, it's irritation around the urethra um, Mm -hmm. and perhaps there's you know that when the tissue is irritated any bacteria that's there can find its way easier up and uh, cause a UTI. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for a UTI, uh, to prevent it, you want to drink lots of water. You want to maybe take some cranberry juice, cranberry mm-hmm. pills. There's azo out there you can buy and it'll help to prevent the spasms that happen mm-hmm. that cause the, the pain in that area. But of course, if it's a true UTI, you're probably going to need some antibiotics so you want to go to your midwife or your obstetrician and get you know a, a ua a, a urine sent to the lab to see what kind of an infection you might have mm-hmm. but the main thing is when there's like recurrent problems uh, look and see what it is uh, is going on are you you know sitting around in your workout clothes or a swimsuit mm, yeah. too long you want to keep that area, honestly, fresh and dry. Yeah. Um, no underwear at night helps. <laughs> and no underwear during the day helps too. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> you no know, underwear is usually a, a good thing uh, to air everything out. <laughs> I think also, I mean, maybe this is pretty personal, but from, from my own experiences, I used to have you remember this too, Mom. I used to have like yeah. really frequent UTIs in the past. Yeah, I do remember. And mm-hmm. I had one that was really awful. It became a kidney infection. Yeah. And um, I I don't know if you remember, but I was like, it was it was after a tonsil surgery too. So that was why I, I got it. I think mm-hmm. I wasn't able to do much. I was 
bed ridden yeah. basically because of you know after yes. recovering from surgery and yeah. I was finally feeling better um yeah someday and I just didn't know what a UTI even was then and it became like a kidney infection and within like yes. 30 minutes I was like fine to really really bad fever and like mm-hmm. really in pain in my back right. do you remember that I remember it was so bad poor yeah. baby yes yeah that was rough so yeah the and both of those things are are yeah. you know awful and I guess also yeah. from personal experience sometimes um it could be you know who who your partner is right because that yeah. was I think partly also the issue in my case mm-hmm. I had my former relationship I had a lot of UTIs and like very recurring and in current relationship there's been none you know I haven't yeah. had any any issues in the last couple years at all mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. sometimes it has to do with just like cleanliness between yeah. you know your partner and and stuff well, as well. cleanliness too and i i have met uh, people who are allergic to their partner's sperm oh wow that they, yeah that they have like a reaction every time they have sex with them and uh, sometimes we meet women who have you know um minor utis every time they have sexual intercourse with their partner and it, that could happen with one partner but not with a, a different oh, partner. Wow. Okay. yeah so it could be just that you know you might be allergic to the sperm or something. is it is it like something in the sperm that you could be allergic to or is it some possibly like you were saying earlier like something to do with their diet that you know if they're eating something that you're allergic to and it's Well, I think that might be two separate things. Like, like if you think of the sperm being really sugary, Mm -hmm. uh, it's feeding the yeast. The yeast love that. They're sitting there in the vagina saying, oh, I hope she goes for that chocolate cake. Yeah. You know, (laughs) and then there can also be like a bacteria in there. Um, And a lot of women experience BV or bacterial vaginosis, Mm -hmm. uh, where uh, that's a different thing. The bacteria in there love when you have your period. They feed off the the you know broken down old blood cells, or when you have intercourse, when they they can feed off the sperm. So, so nasty. I know. And then, <laughs> but the difference with that would be uh, an odor, and it's not so much nasty as annoying. Yeah, some yeah. some ladies just uh, they need to like get rid of the bacteria. Uh, before they return to their normal um, way of living. Mm-hmm. And that could be, a, a you know, an antibiotic into the vagina or an antibiotic by mouth. It's usually flagell. You know, that lady that asked that question, uh, she says she has a UTI and she also has a yeast infection. She should look for those two things. Does she have an odor when she has her period or when she makes love when there's sperm in there um, and it's an odor that's like we call it an offensive odor or a foul odor where you're like oh that doesn't smell right mm-hmm. um, and of course she'd have a lot more discharge um, but not n- doesn't sound like anything to worry about um, if he can wait for the six weeks to pass and then to just resume sexual intercourse you know, just take it easy for the first few times to to make sure she doesn't bleed. Mm-hmm. 
Is it true that um, once you get a yeast infection or UTI, you're more um, likely to get it again? Some women seem to be, you know, unfortunate in that way that they they get recurrent BV, recurrent UTI, recurrent yeast. Uh, so, uh, sometimes we see women coming in a few times a year and then something happens, changes in their life and they all of a sudden uh, stop uh, having these infections. Uh, stress can also affect a lot that's going down mm. in the vagina. Yeah, It can stress your whole body and uh, we do see women having more infections when they're stressed so it's not just keeping yourself physically fit but also mentally calm and to check every now and then throughout your day what was I just thinking and was that stress you know making my body tense and and making my vagina unhappy Mm -hmm. so interesting have you seen a lot of those similar cases with you know women in labor as well does it happen frequently sometimes when you're pregnant as well you know they yeah women who are pregnant uh the tissues get kind of puffed up a little bit mm-hmm. around the vagina and the urethra and the membranes can be stretched a little bit so bacteria can pass over and get up in there easier mm-hmm. and but I, around the time of having uh, their baby when they go into birth we don't see that my much of an increase in yeast or UTIs. That's good. It's like the vagina gets itself ready for the event. Yeah. It it has, the cervix has like a little plug of mucus that keeps that bacteria away and out of the uterus. So the the body's really intelligent, keeps itself safe. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That was a really good question. But there's many tentacles to that question Mm -hmm. too. I feel bad for the girl that she has to ask uh, how to keep the intimacy going, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's the way, like young young people and young relationships, and you're just trying to get to know someone, and then ah, oh, all of a sudden you can't make love to them. That's really hard. I feel like there's also a lot of pressure for like maybe both sides, but uh, you know, on the girl's side too, to yeah. to keep up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the yeah. sex. So um, yeah. that can be. Right. You know, kind of a intimidating thing to like right. not be able to provide when when really a long lasting relationship, you know, the older I get, I see it's a lot more to do with just working together in companionship than, yeah. you know. Right, the, I agree. The in the bed stuff. <laughs> I know, but then the in the bed stuff is so important in a of course a new yeah. relationship, isn't it? And then she has the added uh, stress that perhaps the uh, the biopsy and the uh, leap procedure may have been done because of HPV virus, mm-hmm. and uh, then she's wanting to make sure she's clear of that before she has unprotected sex. It's really hard for us to look at a man and say, "Oh, look at here." here's this man with HPV virus, you know, whereas a woman, we do the pap and we can find it, you know, and there's a lot of people. So it's harder to find it for, for a guy. Yeah. There really isn't like a test we can do. Interesting. Yeah. What are the symptoms of it for a guy? They don't have any symptoms. They don't get cancer. They don't get cancer off their penis, but they can get, you know, uh, sometimes they can get little warts. We can look Mm -hmm. for that. 
if there's like any little warts on their penis or anywhere around their genitals, that might be a clue. Well, well, what would be your your final words to them? I would say, um, you know, to if you really love this guy, tell him that, you know, soon you'll be back to normal um, and that you hope that he'll be able to wait that long. I hate even saying that because, you know, he should be the one saying that to her. So I don't know. I'm not an emotional uh, expert. (laughs) That's okay. Yeah. No, there's still a lot of things that I've learned just because of that question. So, yeah. Thank you. So thanks very much for that question. Um, I'm really not uh, the best person to be talking about uh, intimacy and relationships. (laughs) (laughs) I've made plenty of mistakes in my own past and I'll uh, tell you about them in a future podcast. Yeah, but that that, I think that was a great question nonetheless. Uh, So thank you. And I guess that means it's time to to get into learning about your your days as a walking blood donor. Yeah. Um, So here in America, we can go and donate blood, right? Um, And usually there's a bank of blood uh, need and whenever it's needed it's it's right there and people are very generous they some people donate blood really often and some people uh, sometimes they're just called and they donate blood uh, well i'm rhesus o rhesus negative blood type o negative uh, and that's the universal donor mm-hmm. uh, so there's about 8% of people uh, have this type of blood and we can donate to everybody it's a very friendly kind of a blood to have everybody can have our blood but we cannot have everybody's blood we can only have O negative oh that's right Um, yeah yeah I just wanted to talk about that a little bit like at home in Ireland I used to donate blood quite a bit and there was a place we used to go to donate blood that when you would give them a pint of blood, they would give you a pint of Guinness. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so it was great fun. And that <laughs> that's a good bank, motivator for Irish people. That's great. And um, they used to uh, advertise Guinness uh, on big billboards, and they still do. Guinness is good for you because it's got iron in it, right? <laughs> so you'd have donate your blood, and they would donate a pint of Guinness back to you so it was great fun Um, and sometimes if you were still dizzy after you donated the first pint um, then they would or if you were still dizzy after donating and you drank your first pint they would give you a second pint so (laughs) (laughs) it was kind of like that but I don't know if they still do that, but that's I hope they fun. do. That's hilarious. So funny. And uh, no shortage of blood there, uh, let me tell you. But when I worked in Saudi, uh, there was a, need, a great need for blood, uh, especially in the area where I worked. So Remember where was that? it again in Saudi? In Jeddah. Jeddah. In Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And I worked for the Saudi military. And the women that I delivered often came in very anemic there they would start out in labor very anemic i often saw them coming in with the hemoglobin of five or six whereas we would love to see their hemoglobin 12 13 Uh, so they would have like less than half of what we like is that just because of their diets and maybe their diets maybe the fact that they continuously have babies over Mm -hmm. and over and sometimes 
they would, you know, have like 10, 12 babies. That's honestly normal for their yeah. amount of babies. And they never got to recuperate afterwards. Mm-hmm. And then perhaps at that time, taking iron in pregnancy wasn't something that they were mm-hmm. doing either. So um, when you're a donor, you've, you've called it walking donor. What does it mean to be a walking donor? Well, it would mean that... Um, you would have your name on a list that you have a certain blood type, like O negative, that Mm -hmm. you could always donate. And then throughout your day, you might hear a call over the intercom in the hospital. You know, we need blood. could be in Arabic. We need blood. And the walking donor would then get excused from the job that they were doing and go to the the blood bank and donate some blood. Uh, It could be... Yeah, it's like your it could be call. some. It, it could be something like um, a big motor traffic accident, mm-hmm. or somebody bleeding in the hospital, or a mother having a postpartum hemorrhage, and that's that's my focus really for this mm-hmm. part of the story. Like a hundred years ago, the easiest way for a young woman to die uh, was during childbirth. And, mm-hmm. and and sometimes that was because of postpartum hemorrhage. Like even nowadays, about three to five percent of all women are going to have a postpartum hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not so much and sometimes it's a lot. Uh, and in the developing countries, uh, it's one of the ways a lot of young women will die. So when in case somebody doesn't know what hemorrhaging means, could you explain that? So hemorrhage is just another word for bleeding, mm-hmm. but uh, hemorrhage usually means heavy bleeding. Mm-hmm. A hemorrhage, when a woman has like a, a vaginal delivery, we often see maybe about 50 to 200 cc's of blood loss. If it's a thousand cc's, she's having like a big hemorrhage. Wow. It's really serious. Her life could be threatened by that. And how is it like caused? Sorry, I'm asking a lot of questions. but No, it's great. <laughs> how yeah. is it caused um, during labor, like inside? Well, it's uh, mostly about the placenta site. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's if she bleeds before the baby's born, that's an antipartum hemorrhage. If uh, the baby's born and then the placenta comes out and now she's bleeding, this is now a postpartum hemorrhage. And this is the one where we see it happens most often. Yeah. And it's usually that the uterus now, it's it's empty and it has to contract to close off the little blood vessels where that placenta was. Mm-hmm. So uh, often we give the patients um, some pitocin, which is a medication to make that happen. And uh, the use of pitocin after the placenta is delivered, has reduced the amount of hemorrhages like greatly. So mm-hmm. it's really good. Whereas we don't, like usually the placenta comes out five to 10, 15 minutes after. If it doesn't come out, say after an hour or so, we're going to go up after it and uh, try to peel it off the wall. Or, you know, sometimes the wow. patient might have to go to the operating room with the obstetrician to deliver the placenta that way is to peel it is this by hand or is this yes yeah with your fingertips to catch the edge of the placenta and uh, peel it off now you would very rarely have to do that that's not a common thing um but that would be the first try to get it out Uh, because if you leave it in there and she's bleeding 
she, you got to stop it, right? You got to stop that bleeding. Um, so over in Saudi Arabia, uh, before I became a walking donor, uh, I saw many women having major postpartum hemorrhages that come mm. in and you know if they lost 500 cc's and they've already got this really low blood count they're in trouble mm-hmm. but if they have the low blood count and then they have a big massive hemorrhage then of course their life is uh, at risk and i did see uh, a number of women die because of that wow yeah and they died for different reasons, we couldn't stop the hemorrhage. We didn't have enough blood, couldn't get an IV, something simple as that because she's in a collapsed state. Oh, wow. Uh, and it, and we didn't have the um, med medications uh, or we didn't have the, you know, the, the inserts. They have these great ways of stopping a hemorrhage here uh, where they put a balloon up inside the oh, uterus wow. and blow it up and put pressure on the bleeding side. Wow. Such great ideas that they have nowadays. But and in those days, now this is like 30 years ago um, in a developing country, we had a beautiful hospital with all of the most amazing equipment and electronics, and mm-hmm. but they, they didn't have the basic tools sometimes mm. that we needed uh, or the know-how either so anyway this one particular woman always sticks in my mind I think she was about 18 years old and she was probably having her third or fourth baby and she had the baby uh, she was put into the postpartum room everything was going great and the postpartum room that we had was like a room with four beds and uh there was a, a patient in each room and they usually didn't talk much to each other. They wore their yashmaks and their scarves and it was just like their little breast out while the baby was feeding on this breast. And that was the scene like usually in each bed mm-hmm. um, and it, they were quiet. They didn't talk, chatter. You know, there wasn't like the the laughter and chatter that you might hear here. Uh, hopefully it's different nowadays over there but this is my bleeding truth she went to her postpartum bed and you know the rest of us we were on labor and delivery and one of the girls said sally come quick come quick there's a patient bleeding so i ran down and this lady was on the floor of the bathroom and the whole place was like covered with blood Um, And she was completely unresponsive. I couldn't find her little body because there was all of these cloaks and dresses and underwear and and everything was soaked in blood. And um, she was completely unresponsive. And then uh, she was bleeding and bleeding. And we we started like making the plan, get the IV going, you know, get the meds in. Um, somebody stopped the hemorrhage because we knew it was probably the placenta site. Mm-hmm. And we tried everything right there on the bathroom floor. We were trying everything. And then she had a cardiac arrest. So we're doing cardiac massage, trying to give her oxygen with the you know, an ambu bag. What happens when you have a cardiac arrest? Your heart stops. Oh, it's an arrest. Yeah. yeah, it stops. Basically, she died. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're continuing the resuscitation and everybody's trying their best. 
Um, and then somebody said, let's get her back up onto the bed. And I can remember we all got around her and we're lifting her little lifeless body up onto the bed. And we were looking at each other and we all knew she was gone. She had left that body. And I remember feeling so bad that if we could just get the vein or if we could just get the meds in, if we could just start her heart again, if we could just get enough oxygen in. If we could just put enough pressure on that bleeding, but she had already bled out. You know, she'd been in the bathroom on her own, you know, trying to work it out. Not be they were like humble and quiet and you know, she didn't have it in her to say, Help me, help me, you know, um until it was too late. It was heartbreaking, Bridget. Just heartbreaking. And uh so I remember her name was Miriam. Miriam, uh, it's like Miriam for us. Mm-hmm. I remembered that very day. I can remember looking down at myself covered in blood, and we all cried our hearts out. And we, you know, we had our our hand right up inside the uterus. I had my hand up, trying to like squeeze from through the abdomen, oh. holding the top of the uterus, and my fist against you know where I was hoping the placenta site would be, and I was squeezing the two together. And there was no blood coming out anymore. There was, she had already bled out and we could not save her life. Wow. Um, There was, it was just very sad. And that was, was in a hospital. So you can imagine what happens out out there in the tents and stuff. So that's, that's a really like hard thing to go through. Yeah. It was very dramatic. It was very sad. Uh, but I always remembered her and I went that very next day down to the lab and I said, I'm, this is my blood type. Sign me up. I'm a walking donor. Call oh. me any time that I can help. Wow. Um, and a few times I remember them calling and saying, we need blood now. And I was like, yeah, I can do something. And I'd go and I'd donate my, my bit of blood and I wouldn't mm-hmm. like know who got it or why they needed it or anything. But I remembered this particular patient. And uh, now we're switching to a baby, mm-hmm. a baby girl. She was in, still in her mother's uterus. Um, and I remember the the obstetrician, he was a Saudi obstetrician. And I, I was standing by the bedside and they, he was doing an ultrasound. And he was just kind of like talking through the side of his mouth, not to the patient, not to me, just saying things like, this baby cannot survive. This baby's going to die. This baby is doomed to die. Oh my gosh, and that's so negative and it's hard. So sad. Yeah. And the poor lady was crying and he didn't even look at her and he said, there's nothing we can do. We will induce this baby and there's nothing we can do. It, what was it will wrong? Die. What was the... Well, here's the thing. She had the same blood type as me. She had O rhesus negative. Mm. And her her baby had a different blood type. So the father had a different blood type, obviously. Mm-hmm. So the baby um, inherited the father's blood type. And this is a common scenario, of course, because remember, only 8% are going to have that O rhesus negative. Mm-hmm. So the rest of the population, it's more likely your baby's going to be rhesus positive. So if there's any crossover of blood between the mother and the baby, the mother can build up antibodies against that 
uh, O positive or Reese's positive baby. So the mother's blood thinks, oh, that's an alien blood. Let's attack oh, that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, sometimes if she fell or was in a car accident or, you know, even if the seatbelt ripped her tight or, you know, that would be a way that the bloods could cross over and mix. Interesting. Sometimes at delivery, when the baby's being born, that can happen too. And then the mother ha- builds an antibody against her next baby, which could be racist positive. Wow. So we, we have this great medicine called Rogam. So whenever a young mom is in, you know, falls or is in an accident, and we always want to know her blood type. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if she has a little bleed, even in early pregnancy, or has a miscarriage or an abortion, we want to know that blood type because if there's any way those bloods could cross, we want to give her that rogam uh, to coat the antibodies and neutralize them so that the next baby or this baby uh, does not get affected. And that didn't exist back then? That Well, it did actually, it okay. did exist, yeah. But this woman was coming from the desert full term pregnancy Mm -hmm. and when they did the ultrasound to see you know what was going on the baby was all bloated the baby's uh, liver was swollen the spleen was swollen the baby had fluid where they shouldn't have fluid like their lungs were full of fluid and their whole body was all puffed and swollen and uh, it was very sad um so the the doctor said this baby cannot survive the baby's already got, uh, you know, what's known as rhesus incompatibility. And another name for what the baby had is hydrops fetalis. Any nurses listening to this will remember the picture from the books, you know, of that swollen baby, you know, uh, uh, it looks like it's incompatible with life when they get this hydrops. But that was 30 years ago. Hopefully things are a lot different now in Saudi. So then I'm inducing this lady, right? I put the medicine in to try and get her into labor. But the baby's head is so swollen that it can't come through. And after many hours of contracting and the labor, the cervix is opening, but the baby's still high. Her membrane ruptures and what comes down? Only the cord. The cord comes down in front of the baby's head. So we've been trained, of course, that when we get a cord prolapse, we have to push the baby's head up off that cord so that the baby can continue to have uh, the flow of blood and oxygen while we do a cesarean section. Mm -hmm. And whoever finds that cord prolapse, they have to stay there pushing the head up off the cord until the baby's lifted out through the the abdomen Mm -hmm. so of course that's what I do I get in there and I push the baby's head up and the baby's head feels very soft right it feels like marshmallow and I'm like oh poor baby that feels you know like really swollen Um, and I'm shouting cord prolapse cord prolapse and the same doctor comes in with a few nurses And uh, I said, we've got a cord prolapse. We need to go to the operating room. And he said, I told you, Sally, that baby cannot survive. That baby will die. And uh, I said, please, please. 
we don't know that yet. Uh, she's, you know, asking us to help her. Please, let's save the baby. Or at least do our best. Let's do what we can do. And he said, this baby is doomed to die Why because of the situation. Why was he like that? Did he just not have any experience? Uh, or? Well, maybe. Maybe he didn't have this experience before. Uh, but he was adamant first and I, I looked at him and I, I used a few of my little words like inshallah, you know, um, like please God and uh, marshallah, God is good to like try to get him to please, please help, help the situation. And he gave in and he said, OK. And we went to the operating Thank room God. and I, I had to be on the bottom of the gurney all the way down. And I think actually this was my very first uh, cord prolapse that I remember and mm. um, there's been a few since but that one was very dramatic because we were doing it for a baby that supposedly couldn't survive so we got into the operating room uh, we did the surgery and um, I could feel the baby being lifted out of the abdomen and away from my hand and I came out and I'm watching as they cut the cord and the baby gets put onto the warmer, right? So in the operating room, there's a warmer with a big light over it. And there's the NICU staff, the neonatal intensive care unit. And they're looking at this baby with their hands out by their sides and shaking their head like, what can we do? There's wow. nothing we can do. But there's the little baby and the baby's looking like a little marshmallow, right? Yeah. All swollen. But the baby's trying to breathe. You know, the baby's taking some breaths. Yeah. So the girls, they took a little ambu bag and they were trying to help the baby. Um, and I came over and I said, I'm a walking donor. What about some fresh whole blood? She looked over at the doctor and he was busy, you know, finishing the surgery. And I slapped my arm down on the warmer and opened up my elbow area, my inner elbow. And I said, do it, do it now. And <laughs> um, wow. so she was great. She she got, you know, the things that were needed. She put a tourniquet on me. She attached me somehow with a, a big needle to my arm with a little tiny butterfly needle that she was able to get into the baby. Wow. I don't know how she did that yeah, because the baby was bloated. Vein, yeah. yeah. And she, she said, all right, let's do this. And I uh, was squeezing my arm and uh, we didn't even know if the blood was going in there, but you couldn't see. something was happening, yeah. right? Something was happening. Um, and now this baby needed a blood transfusion because the condition, the hydrops fetalis mm -hmm. uh, that the baby was born with, uh, they were just completely severely anemic. Uh, so I'm giving the baby a little blood transfusion. Like directly then, from your arms straight into the baby. Right, wow. directly into the baby. Um, and I was talking to the baby saying, come on, baby, live. Come on, baby, you can live. Um, and then I remember we stopped after, you know, maybe 10 minutes because we didn't know how much I was given. We were just trying, you know, to yeah. save the baby. And um, the NICU nurse, she drew um, a big syringe with 10 cc's of my blood and took that with her to the NICU. And she was like all into it then with me, you know. Mm -hmm. um, good, well, good honor. Yeah. 
So the baby got taken away and then I had to go to a delivery and I, I, I kind of like in my head, I was thinking baby probably not going to make it, but at least, you know, we tried, mm -hmm. right? We tried. But two days later, the girl said that lady with the, with Reese's problem, she wants to see you. Her baby's still alive. Oh, and I'm wow. like, oh, my God, that poor baby. So I went into the room to see her. And Bridget, the baby was not swollen. The baby looked like almost normal. Wow. The baby had a good color. The baby was taking, you know, milk from a bottle. Wow. I know. And I came in and the patient said, Sally, come and meet your little sister. And she said, I want you to give her a name. Oh and I was so excited. And she handed me the baby and the baby was wide awake looking straight at me. And I was like, this can't be the same child. It just can't. It was like a wow. miracle. And I'm looking at the baby and the baby's looking at me. And I said, I call you Miriam. And that oh. just felt so good. It was so nice. And um, so I often thought about little Miriam and it's my little sister, my little baby sister. That's and so where is she sweet. now? And and if she's still alive, even yeah. even if she did make it, if she, you know, who knows what happened down mm -hmm. the line. But she sure looked a lot better than the baby I, you know, had left wow. in, the, in the OR. And Miriam. Yeah. After the, the other lady, that's that's so sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but they're just a few stories about you my saved truth. Yeah, you saved his life or her life. That's yeah. crazy. Would that be you know to to do a blood trans transfusion? Would that be not allowed anymore? Would there be too much liability or risk? Or I is that I don't. You know, over there. Uh, in Saudi, they they don't really bring the lawyer into the the hospital as much. Like here, we have like a little pretend lawyer on our shoulder all the time, and everything we do, we're consulting with our little pretend lawyer. Like, are you going to get him, sued for this? Yeah. Like, yeah. is am I covered? Am I doing this correctly? Mm -hmm. You know, is this? all you know the way I for, should do for it. good reason and yeah. that's for a good reason yeah. exactly that keeps patients safe but do you think if that situation happened here like could you freely do that and save their life or would it, that just... it wouldn't it wouldn't have to happen here guess, because yeah. they would have the fresh blood they would you know uh, no they would have picked that up way earlier all the women's blood would have been tested they would give her that Rogam shot at 28 weeks, around mm -hmm. 27, 28 weeks, just in case, yeah. you know, and then they do ultrasounds and make sure that, you know, the baby's fine. Yeah. I, I mean, that was just a rare, you know, case. But, but amazing, yeah. 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 That's so, like, I think it's just incredible that under that much amount of pressure and the the, the pushback from the doctor as well, who's right. technically yes. the superior, right? And, yes. And I, I admire you for not giving up and letting him make that call. Yeah, thanks, yeah. Bridget. He, he did come to me afterwards and he said, there's always something new to learn, isn't there? You know, and I was wow. like, isn't there? We're all learning here. Yeah. You know? Was he someone yeah. that like, you know, was a respectable doctor? 
Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. They, you know, um, being a doctor is like a really great thing over there. Mm-hmm. So a lot of uh, the wealthy, you know, children will be sent off to colleges. And, and often it's Western colleges that come here. Oh, they really? go to uh-huh. Europe. Cool. Yeah. Uh-huh. They go to places like Ireland and England. And mm-hmm. yeah. And then they bring that um, back to their country. And I'm sure it's a lot different mm-hmm. now. I mean, I would imagine at this stage, it's more like here. Yeah. You know, that they would have the fresh whole blood and whatever that baby would need. Right. Or, you know, it would never have gotten to that stage. Mm-hmm. Like high drops fetalis, very rare. Nobody sees that anymore unless it's a developing country, as we call them. Gotcha. And for those really tough, you know, times where you witnessed a woman die or not make it, how did you handle that um personally yeah well um you always have a feeling like I could have done more um and I think that nurses carry that I could have done more what did I not do what did I not see that they do their best in the situation here it doesn't matter here or any country the nurses are doing their best in the situation think of it like this nobody became a nurse to do a bad job Something inside them calls them to the job because mm-hmm. the job sometimes is so hard. Yeah. You know, you got to have a real calling to do that work. Um, so they, they get called to do the work and then they bring their best intentions. But when a patient dies, they go home, that nurse, and they cry. They have the feeling, they have the guilt, they have the awful aching in their heart for a long time sometimes for life like look at me I have patients in my memory bank you Mm -hmm. know yeah and that they'll always be there always so it's not you know something that and I often feel you know those poor nurses who had to work in the COVID units and the ICUs over the pandemic what they're carrying now it's horrific it's just because, you know, for the first, you know, year, they were probably like, what could I have done more? What did I not do? And But then it's like, I there's nothing I can do. They they just know it. And it it must be really hard. They have so much, so much on their heart. But they're heroes, too, for, for Absolute. being there. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know a few uh, from our own hospital and they're, I want to check their back. I want to check in under their their clothes to see if there's wings in there. Oh. They're like walking angels. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think this is how I envision you um, because you have had a really long career, you know, over 40 years of working in women's health and labor rooms and learning so much through those years that now you are a really good teacher for all those things and you know now you can slowly transition into your next era of sharing (laughs) all of that that you've learned from experience you know thanks Bridget thank you (laughs) well maybe that's enough (laughs) bleeding truth for today huh 
Yeah, I think that was a great episode. Also, another thing I wanted to mention is that um, Sally was just talking about cord prolapse, and she has another great video talking about it on her YouTube channel for her yoga and childbirth education stuff. So I'll also link the, the cord prolapse video that she's made down in the description as well. And I just wanted to mention something too. For you COVID nurses who've had to deal with all of that uh, trauma and uh, the stuff that you're carrying, being a hypnotherapist, I have developed a little script that might help you, just a little guided imagery. Mm. Uh, you might have a listen to that. It's called Let It Go. Yeah, yeah. I'll also put that in the description. So we're going to have a hefty description that you guys are going to have to listen to <laughs> or read. Awesome. Thank you for you guys' questions and for supporting Sally and always, you know, giving us a thumbs up. Make sure on this episode you guys hit subscribe and share it with all your friends. Uh, make sure that you're not missing any upcoming podcasts as well. Yeah, thanks a million for listening, you know, cheering us on. It's great fun. We're really, you know, excited about future episodes and stuff. But uh, just get your friends to maybe uh, subscribe and have a listen and maybe they like it. Who knows? <laughs> We're going to have a lot more crazy stories. We'll, we'll share some of those intimacy screw ups as well as those work stories but also just want to say shout out to anchor.fm that is the recording studio that we are using virtually um, to meet because I'm living up in NorCal right now Sally's in SoCal so this is how we're getting to record and it's really good quality for podcasts or anything else like that so if, it, if you have any need for it you can check out we have a link for that also in the description below great thanks a million thanks a million have a wonderful night or day or whatever <laughs> <laughs> Bye.